0: Well, good evening, church. Welcome again to our midweek refresh, our devotional studies. We are over halfway through the book of Mark. We've been going verse by verse. This is part 15, close-ups of Jesus through the lens of Mark's gospel. And I keep thinking of Paul's words. I've repeated them over and over where Paul says, beholding the glory of our Lord, we're transformed from one degree of glory to another and so it's not just an academic thing. It's drawing close to Jesus and seeing his greatness and glory. There's one event that we're going to be looking at tonight, and that's the, the, uh, the account of Jesus and three disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration. And Mark records that in Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. So we're going to look at the meaning and the importance of the transfiguration of Jesus on the Mount. Mark 9, verse 1. And he, that's Jesus, said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. Verse 3 and his clothes became radiant intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them and there appeared to them elijah with moses that's interesting and they were talking with jesus and peter said to jesus rabbi it is good that we are here let us make three tents one for you one for moses One for Elijah, and then I like Mark puts in, in verse 6. For he did not know what to say. Peter's just, he's blithering. He didn't know what to say, for they were terrified. So don't be too hard on Peter. Verse 7. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. So it's not notice. It's not listen to Moses, and it's not listen to Elijah. It's it's listen to Jesus. Listen to him. Verse 8. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone but Jesus only. And that's significant. Uh, Moses and Elijah, they vanished off the scene. There's a temporariness to their appearance. Jesus remains, abides, stays. Verse 9. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen. See, we've seen that repeatedly now. He charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. 10. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. Now, Jesus has told them, plainly about his death and resurrection, they're still not getting it, and Jesus sees that. That's part of the reason for saying, don't don't talk about this yet. 11. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah, first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. So, so in that, in that uh, 12th verse, Jesus makes the connection between Elijah, and we'll see that in a minute. That's John the Baptist, and the treatment that Elijah, John the Baptist, got. And Jesus says he's going to get the same kind of treatment. So he's talking about his death, his suffering, and his resurrection, all in this passage. But the disciples still aren't really seeing it. A lot of people wonder about this event, what happened here and what does it have to do with our Christian lives. So we're going to look at five or six points all on the transfiguration tonight. Get a Bible and let's, uh, let's unpack some of these things together. So point number one, you have this further unfolding of revelation about Jesus right in the very first verse of chapter nine. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now, those are difficult words to interpret. Some people, uh, especially people who won't see death until they see the kingdom after it has come with power. And they seem to refer to the second coming. That's what you would think reading it. But there's a problem with that because many of these disciples... Did well, all of them did die before that day would come. So I think it makes more sense to interpret those words more in keeping with the transfiguration that's following. That's the revelation of the kingdom that people would see. I think that's borne out. It's, it's not just a guess. I think it's borne out in Peter's own words. He writes about this. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16, 17, and 18. And, and here's what Peter says about this event. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Well, when was that? 17. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. Quote, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So we know now what event he's talking about. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. So Peter says, that's the experience that we're talking about. So so the account, it's interesting to see this sequence of events. The account of the transfiguration follows right on the heels of Christ's explanation of his suffering and death. In other words, if you go to the end of chapter 8, so we're picking up now at 9.1, but if you went to the last verses of chapter 8, here's what you would read. And he began to teach them that the Son of God must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Interesting, in the very next account, they don't know what this resurrection is all about. Jesus had just talked to them about it. And he began to say this plainly. And Jesus took him aside, remember, and began to rebuke him. So I think the reason for the sequence, you have this strong teaching about Jesus' death, his suffering. Peter doesn't even like listening to it. And then right after that, Jesus takes these three disciples up on, on the mountain I think, to demonstrate, yes, there's suffering, death, rejection. That's what's going to happen to him. But that that's not the end of the story. And there's just no better way to picture that than they get this revelation of this glory of Jesus that they didn't see normally, not, not that kind of transfigured glory day by day. So the experience on the mount would be very encouraging to the disciples after they faced Uh, persecution and suffering, the death of Jesus on the cross. It's a glimpse behind the curtain, future glory. And Jesus places this event right after talking to them about his suffering and his death. Okay, point number two. I think what you have here is a visible demonstration of the truth of Peter's confession. It's in verses 2, 3, and 4. Remember, Peter said, you're you're the Christ, son of the living God. And then 9, 2 to 4, you see a visible demonstration of this. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared... To them, Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. So I just wanted you to notice a sequence, a progression here. Peter comes to grasp the uniqueness of who Jesus is. That's in Mark 8:29. And then Jesus verifies Peter's words. You get it more in Matthew, where he says, Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but the Spirit. That's in Matthew 16, 17. And then third, on the mount, you get this voice coming out of the cloud saying the very same thing about who Jesus was. That's in 9-7. So three things back-to-back back pointing to the uniqueness of Christ. And you just you get the feeling from the gospel writers that, that it's this uniqueness of who Jesus is that gets repeated over and over so that we'll, we'll grasp who he is and the significance of what he accomplished In his incarnation, death, and and resurrection. Okay, point number three. You have this interesting account of Moses and Elijah. It's in verses four and five of chapter nine. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents one for you. One for Moses, one for Elijah. Moses and Elijah. What are they doing there? Well, I think it's, it's, it's more than just the sensational manifestation. I think they demonstrate in, in picture. They demonstrate in picture what the disciples had begun to learn in theory. If you went back to Mark 8, 27 to 29, Jesus Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages in Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he said to the disciples, who do the people say that I am? Now look at the answer. And they told him John the Baptist. And others say Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ. So, what you see here in this vivid revelation is Jesus is greater than both the law, Moses, and the prophets, Elijah. So, both the law and the prophets find their fulfillment, they find their completion in Jesus Christ. And that's why you have this revelation on the mountain the law, the prophets, all pointing to Jesus. And notice, they vanish, Jesus remains. By the way, a really interesting detail, Mark doesn't include it, but Luke does. Luke in chapter 9, verse 30, he says Moses and Elijah were there and they're talking to Jesus. That's all Mark says. Luke says they're talking to Jesus about what he was going to accomplish at Jerusalem. That's really interesting. So Moses, the law, Elijah, the prophets, all fulfilled in the crucifixion of Jesus, his his redemptive death and suffering and and resurrection. Okay, then you have point number four. The commandment repeated so frequently not to tell anybody about this. It's in verses nine and 10. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them, that's pretty strong. He charged them to tell no one what they had seen not forever, but until the Son of Man had been risen from the dead. And so they, they kept the matter to themselves, questioning, they still don't get it, what, what this rising from the dead might mean. It's the same thing we saw in Mark 8, 30 and 31. He strictly charged them, see it again, to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So the disciples, they're still not getting it. They still don't get the whole picture. They were moved by what they saw on the mount for sure. They know something great about Jesus, but they still don't have a clear picture, not at the end of eight and not even in this account in chapter nine about how Jesus would suffer and die and rise again in the kind of kingdom he was going to build. They still, they don't have a full picture. And I think Jesus says, don't talk about this with anybody until after the resurrection. After the resurrection, they would begin to understand things they couldn't possibly understand yet. So wait until I'm risen from the dead, Jesus tells them. Point five, there there is this question still. What, What about Elijah. Where do we get this stuff about Elijah and John the Baptist? It's in 11, 12, and 13. Because the disciples are confused. They asked him, Why do the scribes say that Elijah first must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. So Jesus is saying, I'm I'm going to be treated the same way that they treated Elijah, John the Baptist. 13, but I tell you that Elijah has come. They did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. Some of the scribes, some of the religious leaders, and and some people still to this day are waiting for Elijah to appear on the the scene before the Messiah would come. Of course, Elijah had, had come long ago and died. Notice something significant here. Jesus, he takes this prophecy, the prophecy in Malachi 4, 5, and 6, some of the last words in your Old Testament. And those verses read like this. Malachi 4, 5, and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And Jesus, notice, Jesus takes this prophecy the very words of this prophecy, Jesus takes it and applies them to John the Baptist. And something else, Jesus uses the prophecy exactly the same way this angel, the angel in the nativity account, in, in Luke chapter one, verses 11 to 17, the angel comes to Zechariah about his wife Elizabeth, about the birth of John the Baptist. So Jesus takes these words about the coming of Elijah and Malachi, and he applies them to John the Baptist. The angel comes to Zechariah and Elizabeth talking about John the Baptist and quotes the very same passage from Malachi. So what I'm saying is there's just very, very good uh, theological base for saying the Elijah that's being talked about in these verses is John the Baptist. And Jesus' point is John the Baptist came They killed John the Baptist, and that's what they're going to do to me. The people's hearts have not changed. The last point, I want to ask the question. Peter, it says in the text, he doesn't know what he's saying. He's terrified. And he says in verses 5 and 6, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let's make three tents. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Is that a good idea or is that a bad idea? Well, I think it's good for Peter, James, John, and Cedarview Community Church. It's good for all of us to see the connection These three people on the mount, it's good to know the connection between the law, the prophets, the law fulfilled in Christ, the prophets proclaiming the coming of Christ. So it's good to see the connection of Moses, Elijah, and Christ. That's good. Three tabernacles and three objects of worship, that's bad. They point to Christ. They fade off the scene. Christ abides, and I I just love the voice that comes out of the cloud and says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to Jesus. Listen to Jesus, the great prophet, king, high priest, shepherd of the church, and you won't go wrong hearing the voice of Jesus. My sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. Let's pray. What a great study. It almost, it almost enables us to feel like uh, we, got, we got to be the fly on the wall. We got to see what went on, on the mount. What a glorious Christ we serve. Thank you for your death, your resurrection. Give us, give us understanding of your great work of redemption on our behalf. Let us love you more, follow you more closely, serve you more passionately, and always hear the words of the Father, listen to Jesus. I ask it in your name, amen, amen. Sunday, 10 o'clock, we'll be right here in the sanctuary at the church. I know you have to register and there's all the little rules and regulations about masks and everything else, but God's... God's been so good. We're enjoying being together. We're also live streaming, keeping your joy. I want to talk about for for those who have followed Jesus for years, the constraining power of each new day in Christ. For Christians who have followed Jesus for years. And then at night, we're going to wrap up our series on repentance. The construction of a godly life and how repentance is tied to that. It's a good series, an important series. Last one, Sunday night. I think what we'll do after that is we'll probably go back and finish our Roman series. God bless you, church. Stay in the word. Listen to Jesus and love one another.